Well, let's turn together uh, in God's Word to Matthew chapter 13, as we're making our way slowly through here, through this uh, section of teaching, God's Word. I was talking to an old friend of mine last night, and uh, he asked what I was preaching on, and I told him, and he said, well, I, I, I'm glad you're in a church that lets you go slowly <laughs> through the uh, through the text and uh, take time to uh, think about it. And I, I said, well, my congregation has been very patient uh, to, uh, to do so. I'm, I'm sure I'm a different preacher than they've ever had. And uh, you've all been very patient in these years to, uh, to put up with me. Uh, but we're turning uh, today to Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 35 for our text. So let me read those verses for us as God's word to us this day. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but the garden plants, but, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Well, we were told earlier uh, in this section of teaching by Jesus that he told the crowds many things in parables. We're just, we just have a sampling here. He's, he's, he gives us four parables that he, he gives to the crowds in the first part of this chapter, but he he obviously gave them many more than this. We're just sort of getting a sampling here, and then we'll have four that he gives to his disciples uh, privately in the next part of the text. Uh, Jesus himself described his use of parables, which I remember that they're like metaphors, comparisons, basically. And he described his, his use of parables as both a judgment and a blessing, you remember. A judgment on those who refused to hear his message to repent and come to faith in him as the king, the king of the kingdom of heaven. But they would be blessing to those who heard and received his word. And Matthew tells us in our text here, if you look at verse 34 and 35, that uh, Jesus' use of parables in this way is in fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, Matthew is inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to frequently mention in his gospel, this happened because it was written in the, in the scriptures. And, and, and so he's, he's helping us, especially those of us who are not Jews and might not know the Old Testament as well. He, he's reminding us of the, the strong connection between Jesus and the Old Testament scriptures, that they are fulfilled in him. And so he, he, he 
directs our attention to Psalm 78. And you might like to flip back to Psalm 78 in your Bibles. That's the, the, the psalm that uh, Matthew is quoting here. He says, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, but remember in a, in a real sense, all the Old Testament uh, documents, all the scriptures are prophecy in the sense that they all point toward and find their fulfillment in Christ. So if you take a look at Psalm 78, you actually see here an, an interesting connection that I'm sure Jesus must have made in his own mind between this psalm and his ministry. Uh, there's a little subtitle to that psalm, and we do tend to, tend to treat those with some significance. Uh, they're not usually viewed as, as strictly part of God's word, uh, but those little titles that you often see in italics and smaller print in your Bible up at the beginning of a psalm, they, they are worth paying attention to. Some of them seem to be musical connotations or notations that we don't know today. But this one is identified in the ESV as a mascal of Asaph. Uh, a mascal. Now, what they've done there, and a number of translations do this, is they, they've just transliterated the Hebrew term. Uh, mascal is what it sounds like in Hebrew, the word here. And sometimes that's done because translators don't know exactly how to find one English word to translate that Hebrew term. And so they just transliterate it. Uh, but for your information, this is a very common term in wisdom literature. It's a rather broad term. Wisdom literature, remember, uh, does include parables, comparisons, metaphors like Jesus uses. It, it includes proverbs. Uh, it includes uh, longer pieces uh, like Job, which also contain a lot of metaphors and images. And so this psalm, although strictly speaking, is a song and a prayer to be incorporated into the worship of God's people. It's also, in a sense, we're being told by this title, an important piece of truth, a piece of wisdom. And in fact, the phrase, the, the word is repeated in the lines uh, quoted by uh, Matthew in our text uh, to begin at the first verse of Psalm 78 in the ESV translation. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. It's a common introduction to a wisdom saying, to just sort of getting you ready, okay? Are you ready to listen? And then he goes on to say, I will open my mouth in a parable. Actually, that word that a lot of English translations translate parable, that's that Hebrew word mascal, okay? So in a certain sense, you could say this, this psalm is a parable because oftentimes, when we're in the text, the translators use the word parable to translate this term. I will open my mouth in a parable. Now notice, slight difference in the way it reads in your, your Old Testament, which is translated from Hebrew, as opposed to the translation that Matthew gives us, which is probably from the Greek. The second line says, I will utter dark sayings from of old. Now there's the hidden aspect of a parable, right? I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings. Of, there, is, there is 
there is truth in a parable, there is meaning, but it's not right on the surface. It's not a direct statement. It's a metaphor. It's a comparison. So we saw Jesus telling the parable, for instance, of the sower, okay, sowing seed. Okay, on the surface, it's a narrative about agriculture. But we saw there's a deeper meaning to it. And so there's that darkness about a parable. There is that, that hiddenness about a parable. But notice what he goes on to say in the next lines of the psalm. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord in his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony to Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Isn't it interesting that he says, I'm going to give you parables, I'm going to give you dark sayings, but then he goes on to say, what I'm really telling you is, is what you're your parents have told you. And of course, here he has in mind your spiritual parents, your spiritual forebears. And this is the, this is the revealing side of a parable. Remember, Jesus said that there is a blessing for those who receive his word. They're going to see the truth. They're going to hear the truth. And so the the psalmist here is saying, on the one hand, I'm speaking to you things that seem dark, that seem mysterious, but I want you to know they're really perfectly clear if you're a people of faith. They're the truth that you pass down, that has been passed down to us and that you pass down to those coming after you. Do you see the connection here? Jesus is giving us, in the tradition of this psalmist, he is giving us the truth that is passed down from generation to generation among God's people. Now, we don't have time to go through all 72 verses of the psalm. You might want to go back and read them later. But sadly, the song, psalm recounts, it is a song, recounts the failure of God's people to believe that word. Okay, the, the truths of God, what God had done for them, were for them dark sayings. They didn't grasp them. They didn't make them their own. And so the rest of the psalm just goes, goes through a, like a, a survey of the history of Israel. God did this for them. And that for them. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He led them in the wilderness. And, and, and so they kept rebelling against him. They doubted. They didn't believe he could provide for them in the wilderness. He gets them all the way through the wilderness into the land of promise. And there in the land of promise, do, are, are they grateful? Do they worship him wholeheartedly there? No, they start, they start copying the idolatry of the people there in the land. 
they're given the truth, even as Jesus is giving the truth in these parables, but many of them reject it. And the psalm ends, interestingly enough, with saying that God is going to send them, even though they don't deserve it, even though they've rebelled repeatedly to them, against him, he's going to send them a Messiah. It speaks in the past tense. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel's inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. But it's clear in the context that that image of David is pointing to the greater David, Jesus, who will be the perfect king, the sinless king that David was not. And that brings us then to the parables that Jesus is telling in our text. To go back to verse 31 of Matthew 13, they're parables of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. You notice that that the exact same phrase introduces both of these parables. The kingdom of heaven is like, and we found that find that scattered all the way through Jesus' parables. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The focus of Jesus' teaching is the kingdom of heaven in this passage, and so. We need to be really sure we understand that, what that concept is. It's extremely important in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew identifies the divine kingdom preached by Jesus by name 46 times. 32 times it's the kingdom of heaven, five times the kingdom of God, four times just the kingdom, two times his kingdom, one time the kingdom of their father, one time my father's kingdom, one time in prayer, your kingdom, which we prayed, didn't we? Your kingdom come. Now, kings and kingdoms are familiar realities for Jesus' audience. That's one of the reasons why you see it so prevalently here. Uh, in their world, there is no other form of government except monarchy ruled by one person. The idea of a constitutional government would have been totally foreign to them. They would have had no clue what you're talking about. Individual rights were unheard of. Loyalty to a country or to a region meant loyalty to the one person that ruled that region. So the people of, his, of Jesus' day had a very concrete idea an idea ex experienced in life of what a, what a kingdom was. So when he said the kingdom of heaven is like, they had a very clear view of what was meant by kingdom. So when Jesus comes, and remember his preaching is summarized as repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what are they naturally going to expect? Well, they're going to expect an earthly kingdom. <laughs> They're going to expect that the Messiah, the anointed one, remember that term Messiah means anointed one, they're going to expect the anointed one of David's line to be anointed 
Well, for what? Well, to be king and to be king of an earthly kingdom. They're expecting that, that this king, this anointed one that's promised in the Old Testament, is going to come and raise an army and drive out the Romans, reestablish the Jewish kingdom, and happy days are here again. And the glory days are going to return. That's what they're expecting. They're not understanding the spiritual element of Jesus preaching. Now, they should, they should have had a big hint in that he called it not the kingdom of Israel, not the kingdom of Judah, not the kingdom of the Jews, but the kingdom of heaven. So they should have had an idea right there that he's talking about more than an earthly kingdom. But they missed it, the majority of them. And I think that's the reason why you see so little repentance. I mean, think about it from their viewpoint. Why do you need to repent to be part of a new government? You know, are, are you called repent? Election day is coming tomorrow? You know, there's a disconnect there. They don't, they don't see any need to repentance. For, for repentance, they, they just want to issue in this new earthly kingdom that's going to give them all the desires of their hearts. And that explains, in part at least, why the crowds turn on Jesus so radically after his, he's arrested. It, why should they care about this turncoat, this coward, who's not going to even stand up to, against the Romans when he gets arrested. And so their false expectation of an earthly kingdom gets replaced with the, with the severe disappointment and anger at his not fulfilling that and leads to his, his execution. Now, if that's the difficulty they have in understanding the kingdom of heaven. We have it, in a sense, from the opposite side, don't we? Because we haven't experienced what it is to have an, be in an earthly kingdom. It's been over 200 years since our forebears declared, we serve no sovereign here. <laughs> and we established a government that purposely avoided that. Back when New Hampshire established their, their government, not only did they divide the power among three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial, they didn't even like the idea of having one person ahead of one branch of that, the executive. And so they came up with this executive council that the governor would have to run things by. We, we, we are an anti-kingdom people when it comes down to it. We, we don't think in those terms at all. We can't imagine it. Now, now, our problem, see, their problem was they took their current situation and imported it into their thinking about Jesus. Our problem is going to be the same thing. It's going to be difficult for us to avoid importing our politics into the preaching of, of Jesus. Because our temptation is going to be to think, okay, he's, he's a king. 
He's preaching the kingdom of heaven, but that's, that's nothing more than a word to us. And so we run the real danger of Jesus being, in our minds, a king in name only. In name only. And so it's hard for us to make that, make that leap to the impact of Jesus' teaching. Now, when a new president takes office, you, your life doesn't significantly change. You know, when, when a new party takes control of the legislature, your, your world is not thrown upside down. You, it, things just sort of go on the way they have been. And there's a real danger for modern Americans to think, well, I, I make Jesus my king. I, I, you know, put a saying up on the wall or, or, or I, I, I go to church on Sunday, but really doesn't have much to do with the rest of my life. Right? I, I, I'm just, I'm the same as I was, only I'm calling myself by a different name. We call ourselves Christians and live pretty much just as we would without them. Uh, Jesus is a little bit more like an absentee landlord. Okay? We pay him dues, and we complain when he doesn't fix stuff that we want him to fix. What, what's, what's all this kingdom talk? We don't live in the dark ages, do we? Well, we need to, we need to hear Jesus' words here again. Jesus does not come campaigning for your vote. He, he, he doesn't need the support of anyone to gain authority and power. He, Jesus doesn't come asking you to make him Lord. To make him Lord. He's already Lord. He, he already has that absolute. You have been living under his absolute rule since you were conceived, you don't make him Lord. He's Lord. He's your sovereign, whether you believe him or not. And so in his teaching, Jesus is thinking that way when he talks about how you're to live. He's thinking, I'm giving you the rules for all of your life. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't we? Sermon on the Mount is, is basically Jesus saying, okay, all the Old Testament law, that's my law. And I'm going to explain to you some important aspects of that. You want to know how you're supposed to live? I'll tell you how to live. And, and so he, he touches on all kinds of things in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? Your emotions, your anger, okay? Uh, how... It, how you live your life from day to day, your sexual ethics, your relationships with others, it's all, it's all part of the package. Jesus is coming saying, I'm the king, you have a new way of living. And so that's the significance of, of Jesus preaching repentance, isn't it? Because the kingdom that he comes to proclaim, you're not ready for. His kingdom is a kingdom ruled by a holy king, and it's for a holy people. And, and then even people, 
only people who are way out of touch with the reality would say they're already holy. Okay, I'm sure there are a few people out there that are that deluded. But most people, ordinary people, you ask them, are you a holy person? Are you a perfect person? They're going to say no. Well, if you're not holy, if you're not perfect, then repentance is the order of the day. Right? Because if the kingdom is coming and it's only for those who are holy, you must repent or you're out of the kingdom. Now, now, when a person really understands that, when a person really understands the kingdom of God as his holy reign, as a holy God, they're moved to repentance. Okay. You don't have to ask him twice. We've seen that in Isaiah 6, haven't we? He has given a vision of God as king. He's given a glimpse into the holy kingdom of God. And what is Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. The kingdom is upon me, and I'm not ready. That's what he's saying. I'm a sinner. And so God extends to him forgiveness. But look for that in, in the lives of people who 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 are confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. There's a neat story in, in Luke 5 about Peter. You know, he's a fisherman to his bone. And there's this story of, of Jesus borrowing Peter's boat to sit in to preach to the people on, on the shore. And, and after he's done preaching... Uh, he says, Peter, why don't we go out? You can catch some fish. And Peter says, sorry, Lord, you don't really know fishing. I know you're not a fisherman. I know we, we, we spent the whole night fishing. They're, they're just not there today, okay? I don't know. It's the weather or whatever it is, but they're not there. And Jesus says, no, no, I think, I think you need to go out and get some fish, Peter. Peter says, well, okay, if you say so. But you can sort of read between the lines, you know, Jesus is going to be really embarrassed when I get out there and there's no fish. And, of course, you know what happens. The net can hardly contain the fish. And Peter realizes, I am not in the presence of an ordinary human being. He, he's a fish. He knows fish. He knows his world, and this should not happen. And what's his response? I love his response. He falls down at Jesus' feet and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. <laughs> Strangest response to a catch of fish, don't you think? <laughs> but it's because he, he had a glimpse of who Jesus is. It's not an ordinary person. This is God in front of me. It's a supernatural power. And what's his response? Oh, isn't this great? I've got God next to me. It's he's aware of his sin. Get away from me, Lord. You may have to strike me dead any moment because I'm a sinner. 
Or think about that beautiful story a couple of chapters later in, in Luke 7, where Jesus goes to dine at a Pharisee's house, and of course, he's got it all together. You know, he, he's, he's following the rules. He's a good person. And so he invites Jesus as the latest celebrity to his house. He's going to bless Jesus with his invitation and, and maybe, maybe give Jesus a few pointers along the way. And, and you know the story of the, the woman of the street coming in and, and probably into a courtyard, an open courtyard. This, this would not have been a strange thing like somebody walking into your house. This would have been customary for a wealthy person to have a courtyard and be dining and and people in the neighborhood come to see you know the great feast and all that's going on celebrities that are attending but this woman comes in she's a woman of the street she's an immoral woman and she comes up behind jesus and the tears start falling on his feet and she kneels down begins to wipe his feet with her hair, and to kiss them, and to put ointment on them. Why she do that? Because she knew she was in the presence of the Holy One. The Holy One. She, she was, in the eyes of the world, demeaning herself because of his greatness. She was humbling herself because she saw his majesty. That's what happens when people begin to really understand what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of heaven. They repent. That's what she's doing. She's repenting. In fact, Jesus identifies it that way. She doesn't even have to say a word. doesn't have to say anything. He knows that she is repenting and he extends to her forgiveness. That's what happens. That's what happens. Or, or an even more radical example, don't you think, is the thief on the cross. At first, railing against Jesus, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is mocking him and taunting him. Why doesn't he do the same? But something happens. Have you ever wondered how that happened? <laughs> how does he look at this bleeding mass of humanity and realize that's a holy one dying next to me. That has to be a work of the Spirit, doesn't it? Absolutely nothing about Jesus' condition there says that he is the powerful all-king of the universe. And yet that that dying man, guilty by his own admission. I'm guilty of the crime. I deserve to be executed, he says. But he looks at Jesus and says with faith, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Is there anything more ridiculous from a human standpoint? This man is dying a horrible, shameful death. And this other guy dying is saying to him, 
You're the king. And I know you're going to come into a kingdom. Will you think about me? When you come into your kingdom, we just have a passing thought of me. Will you remember me? Of course, Jesus promises far more than that, doesn't he? Remember you. You're going to be with me. I won't have to remember you. You'll be right there with me in my kingdom. And people understand the kingdom of God. It changes them. It transforms them. It brings all of their life under his rule and under his control. Is that where you're at? Is Jesus your king? Does he command your every waking moment? Does his law govern the way that you live? Is his desire your desire? That's what's packed into Jesus preaching the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've got that, okay, that raises a couple of questions. And I think they're reflected in our text. And I'll try to pick up the pace at this point. <laughs> One of those questions is, if, if this kingdom is as far-reaching as you're talking about it, if it's as... If it's as expansive as you're talking about, then how come it's not here? Why, why are we just hearing this from this manual labor, this stone worker who's, who's walking around preaching? Why isn't he a king? Why, why, why don't we see his kingdom? That's what they wanted, remember. They wanted that earthly kingdom so they don't understand it. And I think the first parable here answers that question. So let's go back to that, the parable of the mustard seed. The principle here is clear. It's from smallness to greatness, right? Now, Jesus is speaking in common, ordinary terms. Uh, he's, he's speaking with hyperbole here. Exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. Don't, this isn't a science lesson, so don't get all upset that, you know, well, mustard seed isn't really the smallest of the seeds. You know. it, would be, it would be the smallest of the seeds that Jewish gardeners would have in their garden. So he's just, just talking about a common fact. And in fact, it was sort of proverbial in Jewish culture. It was proverbial for something small that gets big because this little seed produces what we would call a shrub, you know, eight feet tall or better. And so it's quite remarkable for that reason. And so it's sort of passed into proverbial sayings that if you wanted to say something started small and had great effect, you'd say it's like a mustard seed, you know, grown into a plant. You know, maybe a, maybe a common saying in, in English would be that old that old uh, proverb, the greatest oaks have been little acorns. You know, that's a few hundred years old in, in the English language. Smallness yields to greatness. As these people look at the kingdom of heaven standing in front of them, and it's standing there in front of them because the king's there. Okay, so where the king is, the kingdom is. And they look at it, and it's small. It's just this itinerant, 
former manual laborer, and a few followers who are not much count either. And they look at that and say, how can this be the kingdom of heaven? How can this be the king? So Jesus is explaining with this parable. He's explaining to his disciples the the kingdom of heaven may appear small on earth. It may seem a tiny thing, insignificant thing, but it's going to have incredible expansiveness to it. That that little group there, that that itinerant preacher and those men and women, say common laborers or converted sinners. They don't look like much there, but they're going to change the world. Not too many years after this, Jews in one of the cities in Asia Minor will say, the ones who have turned the world upside down have come here. They're talking about Christians. But of course, it's going to be far beyond that, isn't it? John's given a glimpse of it. Revelation 7, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. He can't count them. They just stretch on beyond his view from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. The gospel is worldwide now. Christianity is the first and only religion to truly be a world religion. It may seem to be declining and in our wealthy country here, in other wealthy countries, but it's exploding elsewhere. It's exploding in the global south. In the foreseeable future, Africa will be the country with the continent with the most Christians in it. The kingdom is expanded and is expanding. Virtually every Every advance, technological and moral, that the modern world enjoys has its roots in the Christian faith and worldview. Isaiah the prophet saw this. Isaiah 45, God says, Turn to me and be saved for all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. In other words, this will most certainly come to pass. And what's that word? To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. All the globe. It's the kingdom of God. Paul may be thinking of that promise in Philippians chapter 2 when he, he speaks of Christ in his exalted state. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Kingdom rules, because the king rules. His kingdom will know no end. Don't be dismayed at what seems to be a smallness 
about the kingdom of God and your earthly experience. It's destined to be universal in scope. So what's the parable of the leaven about? The parable of the mustard seed seems to be about external growth. The parable of leaven seems to be also a comparison to something small, even invisible, uh, that has come to have extensive effects. Now, this leaven here is not yeast. This is starter dough. You know, if any of you make sourdough bread. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about a starter, starter dough that, that the, the woman incorporates into it. And this is a huge batch of bread. I mean, it could feed dozens of people. Okay, there's a little bit of hyperbole perhaps going on here. Okay, this woman is preparing a feast. Uh, this is the same amount of flour that Sarah uses when she entertains visitors from heaven. Maybe that's why Jesus said, put, put, uh, pick this amount for his, his uh, parable. Uh, and, and don't be dismayed. I know oftentimes leaven is a negative image in Scripture. It's sometimes used for, you know, that, well, we, we see it in the, in the common saying, one rotten apple spoils the whole bag, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but leaven is not always, always a negative image. It's actually offered in some sacrifices in the Old Testament. So, so we're right, I think, to, to take this as a positive image of the kingdom of God. So this perhaps answers the question, well, you know, if God's brought me into his kingdom, how come I'm not better? <laughs> you ever feel that way? You know, you've, you've sincerely repented as sincerely as you can. You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And yet your, your life doesn't seem to be so outstanding like some of the people you read about in the, in the Bible or some of the people you read in the history book. The great martyrs of the faith. And, you know, you're not out evangelizing the world like Paul, Paul was or... It just, it just sometimes seems like there's not much there. And I think this parable speaks to that. To tell you that the kingdom of God is lodged in your heart. Okay, if God has become your king, it may seem like a small beginning. But you're headed for glory. What does that look like? Well, I think it looks like Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you ever wish God would just wave a magic wand to make it perfect yesterday? That's <laughs> no, not the way he does it. You are justified in him if you place your faith in him. You're justified and fully justified. But what comes after that is sanctification, and that's a process. That's what Paul's talking about here, being transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is something that engages your mind. It's not just some mindless trance, okay? This is learning a new way of thinking. That's what he's saying. And it involves some effort on your part, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You're to seek after God's will 
he transforms your mind, your thinking, to understand what that is and to pursue that wholeheartedly. So it's a process. It's a movement. It's like that, that leaven working its way through the dough. Paul discusses this process of growth in the context of the church. You're not alone in this. Okay? There are people to help you with this. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning verse 11. He gave, he that is Jesus, gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You catch that? The work of ministry is done by you. But you're equipped by teachers, by God's word and so forth. And to what end? For the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're all growing up together to be more like Christ. Okay. And, it, and in fact, in fact, speaking the truth in love, he goes on to say we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this is an image not only of the growth in you as an individual, but of the growth in the, in the church. We're being sanctified. We're, we're, we're learning Christ, to use an expression that Paul uses later in chapter 4. And he describes it this way. He says it's like you're you're putting off an old self and putting on a new self. Okay, you're consciously choosing not to live one way and to live another way, we might put it. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like substituting one thing for another. Stop lying and tell the truth, he says. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't lose your temper. Don't let the sun go down in your anger, in fact. You don't want to give any opportunity to the devil. If you're stealing, stop stealing. Get a job. And then give to people who need help. Do, do honest labor to benefit others. Let no corrupting talk out of your mouth. Watch what you say. Stop letting garbage come out of your mouth. Instead, he says, speak that which is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Been dealing with a situation recently in which people are attacking one another with their words. They're tearing down one another with their words. And they claim to be Christians. Paul's saying, your speech should be that which is good for building up, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The church is to help you in that process, in other words. Let other people help you to grow in the Lord. And remember this as we approach a close. Remember that this growth of the kingdom in you that we see in this, this parable that is ultimately not something you bring about in your own human strength. The flower doesn't transform itself. It is transformed by the starter, by the leaven. And in you, 
This growth in godliness is not something you manufacture in your own strength. You depend upon the Holy Spirit to do it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And if the Spirit of the Lord is in you, you're free. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you catch the magnitude of that promise? If you're a, a follower of Christ, if you've been born again, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are being transformed into glory. C.S. Lewis says at one point, if we, could, if we could look at another Christian and we could see the way they looked in their glorified state, the way they will look in their glorified state, we would be tempted to fall down and worship them. Because they shine with the glory of God. The destiny of those who belong to the kingdom of heaven now is glory. You're going to be called to sacrifice things for the sake of the kingdom. Some of those sacrifices may be very painful. But remember that no sacrifice you make will even compare to the glory that God has ahead for you. And, and let the hope of that, let that joy set before you to use that expression for Christ's attitude in facing the cross, remember we're told, he, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He, he wasn't a masochist. He didn't enjoy suffering, but he's looking at the joy that is on the other side of that. So let the joy, of the glory that God has for you as his follower, for you as his church, let that joy be your joy now. Grab, grab a little piece of that, a little anticipation of that glory, and allow that to encourage you even in the midst of difficulty and pain. I think Jesus felt great joy in giving that word of grace to that thief next to him. I, I'm willing to bet that in the moment he's speaking those words, all the pain disappears out of his mind because he is so caught with the joy of welcoming welcoming someone into the kingdom of heaven. I, ho I hope you can catch that joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we began this service confessing that we are sinners in need of grace, and that's still true here at the end of the service. But we've been reminded that, that you've called sinners to be your people. In fact, we, we heard in one of these texts that we are your inheritance. That really is incredible to think about, that, that we, as those for whom you've died, are your inheritance. We belong, in other words, to your kingdom. Lord, help us to live in the light of that. Even this week, give us a kingdom mentality that, 
that seeks to worship you and praise you and serve you in all things, and which anticipates and even, even has a foretaste of that joy which will be ours when your kingdom comes in its fullness. For all this, we will give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.